life is sometimes like this service is going to be. There's times where you just are having a little bit of fun, just letting it loose a little bit. And then there's times where it just gets real serious and real difficult. That's the way life is, isn't it? That's the way life was this week. So, you know, many of us, we still haven't come to grips with the tragedy on Monday this past week during the Boston Marathon. You know, what should have been a time of celebration and accomplishment turned into a terrible tragedy and a nightmare. Currently, there's four people who are dead, including an eight-year-old boy, and at least 10 of the 183 people injured in the bombings are still in critical condition. Also this week, you probably heard Wednesday at 8 o'clock in Texas, near Waco, Texas, a fertilizer plant exploded. 14 people were killed. It injured about 200 people. 50 houses were damaged, and 60 people are still unaccounted for. And I just want to spend a little bit of time and just pray. And I know we just are doing a 180 right now, but that's the way life is sometimes. Sometimes it's just a 180. And there's no graceful way to, to move into that. But I want to pray, and I want to lift those folks up. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray for the folks that have just lost loved ones, whether it's in Boston or Texas and the incredible loss that they're going through right now, the questions they have that may never be answered, but we just would pray for your grace and mercy in their lives. For those who have been injured, Father, for uh, the many in Boston who've lost limbs and are just, some are still in very serious condition and may not make it. We just pray for their families. We pray for them. We pray for their strength and, and healing and help. For not just the physical healing, but the emotional healing that they're going to des desperately need. We ask, Father, for those who have lost so much. We thank you for the heroes, for the many who showed what grace is, what strength is, what tenderness is. For those who sacrificed and just, we just thank you for the good, Father, that we saw and we've heard, the accounts, the stories we've read. We don't know how to pray at times like these, Father. We just have seen evil. And it's incredibly ugly. And there is, seems as though there's no way to stop it. But we know, Father, that you have a plan and a purpose And that heaven isn't the side in this time now. So we pray for the days to come, for the families that are struggling, the families that have suffered loss, for the families that don't even know where to begin today, that you would just bring them closer to you. May they find hope in you. May they find friends and neighbors and people that can walk with them in this difficult walk. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
as I was preparing my message for this weekend on the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, I thought, how in the world do you make a transition to what has happened this week? And frankly, as I thought about it, I think there's an incredible parallel to the passage we're going to look at in the book of Nehemiah. Now, let me just say something about this, all right? Because everybody's saying, what happened? What happened? All right, you know where they say when you fall off a bike, you need to get back on it again? Well, I fell off. Now I just have to wait four to six weeks to get back on. So that's basically what happened, all right? So (laughs) anyway, so let me just jump into a review of where we've been so we can give a little bit of historical context Because I'm going to assume there's some people here that maybe this is your first time at Hope or you don't know the history and I don't want you to feel dumb because I felt really dumb and nobody explained things to me. So I just, I love it when people explain things to me because I just don't sometimes get it. So let me just assume that some of you don't know this and let me explain it, what I know, and that maybe it'll help you. Israel was under a united kingdom. They had one king. They were under a monarchy. And that began uh, their first king. We talked about this last weekend, King Saul. And then David took over for King Saul. And David was one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. He was a man after God's own heart. And then his son Solomon took over. And under Solomon, the kingdom really expanded to its fullest extent. It was the richest, most powerful as it ever was under Solomon. And then, after Solomon, the kingdom was divided between the north and the south. In the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, there were ten tribes. In the southern kingdom, that was called Judah, there were two tribes. And the northern kingdom, basically, uh, was fairly wicked. So was the south. But uh, ultimately, they began to drift away from God. So here they are in the promised land, but they've drifted from God. And this is what it says in 2 Kings 17, 7. This disaster, and it's talking about how the northern kingdom was taken into captivity by Assyria, the kingdom of the nation of Assyria. And it says this, This disaster came upon the people of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, because they worshipped other gods. They sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them safely out of Egypt and had rescued them from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, the people of Israel... uh, Divided kingdom, the northern kingdom goes into uh, captivity, and by a, they're taken into captivity by the kingdom of Assyria. Shortly after that, there's a new kingdom that comes in, the Babylonian Empire, and they take the southern kingdom, the, the Ju- people of Judah, into captivity. So the people of God enter into a captivity period, and it lasts 70 years. 70 years they're in captivity until God allows them to come back into the promised land. Now, something happened when the northern kingdom was taken into captivity uh, by Assyria. What they did was they sent people to populate the land. And those people intermarried with the Jewish people, the Hebrew people that were left in the land, because not everybody was taken out, but the majority of the people were taken out. And these people intermarried, and they became what we, in the New Testament, we hear about the Samaritans. So they're kind of half-breeds. They were populated, uh, they, were, they married the Hebrews that were in the land, the Jews that were in the land, 
but they were not, they were kind of mixed and, and they weren't pure Jewish people. And so they did that so that the, the land would kind of be stable. That's kind of how they did it. So what happened was the remnant is allowed to return back into the land. So there's a remnant of the faithful who have been taken into captivity 70 years. Obviously, generation has passed. They come back into the land and they began to rebuild. And this was under a new empire. The Babylonian Empire is now gone. So we have the Assyrian Empire that took the northern kingdom. We have the Babylonian Empire that took the southern kingdom. Now, 70 years later, we have the Medo-Persian Empire. We know it today as modern-day Iran. And they basically said, okay, now you can go back into your land. But the only thing is, you can have no king, you have to pay taxes, and you have to get permission for virtually everything you do. So you're in your own land, but we're really over you. And that's kind of the way it was. And if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, we call that 70-year period the 70 years of captivity. Now, after that, there's two books, historical books in the Bible. They're called Ezra and Nehemiah. And basically, those two books are all about restoration. You have the restoration of the temple. That's Ezra 1 through 6. You have the restoration of the community. That's Ezra 7 through 10. Then we come to the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is restoring the city, or the city walls, 1 through 7. And then the rest, rest, uh, restoration of the covenant community. And that's what we want to look at. Because the most important restoration that God was doing with His people was restoring His Word in their lives. And that's the chapter we want to look at. It's Nehemiah chapter 8, and you can look in your chair Bible and follow. I want to read some selected verses tonight. Nehemiah 8, starting at verse 1. All the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to, for Israel to obey. This is probably the Pentateuch. They're probably reading the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, they read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. That's verse 8. Then verse 9 says this, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people, said to them, Do not mourn or weep on such a day like this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the Lord. Now let me give you a little background of what's going on here. They've taken the scroll, the, probably the scroll of the Pentateuch, and they're reading it. They're, they're going for hours reading this on a daily basis. And the people, when they hear the word, they, they are just broken by this. So as they read God's word, they explained it to the people. The prophet Hosea said this in Hosea 6.6. 6. By the way, there were three prophets that ministered during this, what we call the post-exilic or after-captivity period where they're coming back into the land. Those prophets um, were um, uh, 
I'm going blank here now. Hang on. I got it later here. Well, obviously Malachi and, uh, and, and we'll get to the other ones. But here's the point I want you to see. Hosea says this. He says, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. And every generation needs to have a knowledge of the word of God. Every generation needs to hear the word of God freely. And all the people, here's what they did. They responded by lifting their hands in worship to show a sense of need. They said, amen, amen. And amen literally means we agree, we agree, we agree. Thus, they affirmed their submission to the authority of Scripture. They bowed down to the ground as a sense and a sign of humility and submission to God. Um, And, you know, we could learn uh, from this. Uh, See, they weren't worshiping the Bible, but they were worshiping the God of the Bible. And it was breaking their hearts. You see, this all took place on the seventh month in the fall harvest time. And it's the Jewish equivalent of the new year. So here's what they do. They're in the land. They've rebuilt the temple. They are rebuilding the walls. And now they're rebuilding their hearts, so to speak. And they're hearing the word of God. Their hearts are being broken. And this is at the beginning of the year. So this is a very key point. Here's what I want you to hear. After hearing the word of God, the people were weeping because of their sin and brokenness. They saw their sin. They saw their brokenness. The word of God reminded them of their sinfulness and pointed out their own hearts, their own broken hearts, their sinfulness. Their repentant response is a demonstration by a reverence for God and his word and sadness. When, and here's, here's what I want you to understand. When we truly allow the word of God to speak to our hearts, sometimes it's going to break our hearts. Sometimes it's going to bring us to tears. It should. It should. It should break our hearts. It should bring us to tears. Uh, and the word of God will transform us. But, but then they're told, in the midst of all this weeping, they're told to rejoice. <laughs> Which is kind of odd, because you go, well, maybe they ought to weep for a while, you know. They, but they're told to rejoice. And, and here's the idea I want you to take away this weekend. The gospel. The word of God, the gospel, when it's properly understood, should make us weep and should make us rejoice. Should make us weep and should make us rejoice. Now, how do the people go from weeping to rejoicing? Here's where I think we apply this to our day. Today, we're living in what I think is, and many have characterized it as, the already but not yet. We're living in a time where Jesus has won the victory, but we don't see a lot of the fruit of it sometimes. That Satan is not... There's a a point where Satan is is limited in what he can do. But we are living in a time for Christians where sin and death has been conquered, but we still struggle with it. We are faced with two equal truths in in our world today. One is this. We live in a fallen world. That brings pain, pain due to natural disasters, pain due to to a a tainted gene pool where we contract diseases like cancer and and different things along those lines. And we live in a world where there's where there's human beings who have a capacity within their human hearts to do incredible evil. That's the world we live in, folks. But the second part of this truth is this. That we, know, we who know Jesus are being redeemed and we're being restored. 
that we have a future heavenly hope that surpasses anything this world can bring. That we are looking for the day of the final restoration for our world and for us. And we talked a little bit about that a couple weeks ago. Now what does that mean? How do we bring this passage where these people, when they encountered the Word of God, were both weeping and then told to rejoice. This balance between weeping and rejoicing. Because that's life. Many times that's life. Now sometimes people, all they do is weep. (laughs) Or all they do is rejoice. But ultimately, there's two things that this passage shows us. Number one, we will suffer the effects of a fallen world. And what they were brought to terms with when they examined the Word of God was they saw how their forefathers had broken covenant. They saw how they were in the midst of breaking covenant with God. That they weren't keeping the law. And it broke their hearts. They saw their own sinfulness. And the events of this past week remind us once again that we live in a fallen world. That life is tough. Our planet, though it is wonderful and beautiful, is a mess. And people can be big jerks and very evil. Our planet is no respecter of persons. And human beings can do terrible things to one another. Now, I just want to make a comment about this whole thing that happened in Boston. And I don't have answers, so if you're looking for answers, don't look to me because I don't have them. But I believe this past week we saw just how diabolical the human heart can truly be. We heard stories, though, about how heroic people could be and how incredibly caring people can be. As long, though, as we're living on this side of heaven, we are going to continue to see these kinds of acts of terrorism. We're going to continue. Uh, You may not be, you know, and here's the, the sad thing. I heard person after person, wrestling friend, coach, parent, uh, uncle, saying, this is a mistake, it can't be. I know this person, that's not, that's not who they are. Many people who knew the me- these men, family members and friends, were stunned. And, and basically the response was, it can't be them, th- th- them, they didn't do it, they're like us, we would never do this, it can't be true. Jeremiah says this, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? And we just saw that this weekend. Unfortunately, we won't be able to prevent these events from happening in the future. Until the human heart is changed, it has the capacity to do great harm. We live in a dangerous world. And Jesus said, when you live in this world, there will be tribulation. On the other hand, we will continue to see incredible acts of kindness and people acting and living as heroes because God calls people to a higher ethic to love one another. And we saw demonstration after demonstration of that. We saw the great goodness of people coming out. By the way, it's easy for us to point our fingers at others. But if you're honest, sometimes you can be a real jerk yourself, right? You can. 
And we're all capable of unspeakable evil, deception, and rebellion. And that's why Jesus had to come and die. And I think one of the issues that we saw in the text of Nehemiah is these people for the first time, maybe in a long time, maybe ever, came to a point where they weren't comparing themselves to one another. They were comparing themselves to God and His standard. And they found out they felt woefully short of the glory of God. And it broke their hearts. One side of the gospel, if we understand it correctly, is that we are more sinful than we would ever care to admit. In fact, we're often blinded to our own hypocrisy, hard-heartedness, and our own capacity for evil. We're blinded. That's one truth. The second truth is we can look beyond this world with hope. You know, in... In Nehemiah's day, the people were told, okay, there has to be a point where you deal with the sin, but now you need to move on and you need to rejoice. You need to uh, enjoy life. You need to uh, move on from the morning. And the people were encouraged to enjoy what God had provided for them. There was a time for weeping over this sin, but there was a time to rejoice. And, And there is a point, folks, where we have to stop wallowing in our sin and move on. We need to confess it to God and move on. There's a point where we must deal with our sin directly, honestly and completely. We need to stop blame shifting and, and tell, uh, take full ownership of our actions. Forgiveness comes only to those who see their need, who acknowledge that I am guilty and they call upon Jesus for forgiveness. And I don't know where you're at tonight. If you compare yourself to other people, you'll never get there. It only comes when you compare yourself to the standard that God has laid then you realize you fall short. But then there's a time that we we need to accept and rejoice in His freedom and forgiveness. Too many people are trying to do penance for sins that they've already asked God to forgive. Maybe you're one of them. You keep asking God to forgive you. Now, He has forgiven you, but you just... You know, once we come to grips with the seriousness of our sins and confess it, we need to move on. This is what it says in Isaiah about God when we confess our sin. It says this, I, yes, I alone will blot out all your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. So why do you keep bringing it up? If you've confessed it, why do you keep bringing it up? Because see, the other side of the Gospel is we're more loved we're so loved that, that, that God, God's Son, Jesus Christ, got off His throne. He came to earth. He died on a cross for you. And He rose on the third day. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He took your place. He took your sin. He took your punishment. And He gave you His righteousness. See, what I'm saying is we'll only thrive as we accurately apply the Gospel to our world, and to our lives. The cross, the gospel, holds these two truths in tension. And the truths in tension are, one, we are more sinful than we would ever care to to admit, and two, we are more loved than we would ever dare, dare dream, dream possible. We weep over our sin, we rejoice over our acceptance. And those are the two sides of the coin. And this is a hard line to walk. Here's what I mean. If you only focus on your sin, you'll never have a day, you'll never have joy and peace. You'll always beat yourself up 
that you're no good and how could God forgive you? And, you know, you say, basically, I've dealt with people like, oh, I don't think God could ever forgive me. And, I, and I've said to a few of those people, yeah, that's a, you're, you're a pretty proud person. They go, well, proud? That doesn't seem proud. Well, absolutely it's proud. You know, you might think a person who says, oh, God couldn't forgive me, that's a, a very humble. It's not. It's pride. What is it? Why is it pride? Because they won't accept what God has done for them. They won't accept what God has said about their sin. They are trying to play God. Instead of saying, yes, God, I understand what you said, and I understand what you've done, and I accept that forgiveness because I need it. They say, no, it's not good enough. That's pride. That's pride. It's calling into question the very words, the pronouncement of God. That's pretty arrogant. Anytime you say, God, you're wrong, that's pretty arrogant. (laughs) And that's exactly what it is. But see, that's one side. If you only focus on your sin and you won't accept his forgiveness, then you're wallowing in your sin. But if you only focus on the grace of God and you never come to grips with your own sinfulness, you downplay the sacrifice of Jesus. You say, well, Jesus died for bad people, but I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. I go to church. I keep the law. I, whatever it is, you know, I, I, I'm on the scale. I'm up above 50% of the people, so I must be good. And, and so what you do is instead of saying uh, you, you play the grace card, you say, well, God may need to die for really bad people, but I'm not so bad. And, and what you tend to do is you become a pretty judgmental person. You begin to compare yourself to other people and say, well, that person's really bad, but I'm not. That person really lies, but I don't. That person's really deceitful, but I'm not. Uh, that person is really uh, immoral, but I'm not. And we, so we compare ourselves to others. And I just want to say to you, somebody who truly understands the gospel says, the ground is level under the cross. I'm a sinner, and so are you. And it really doesn't matter how much. We're all sinners. There's no room for racism sexism, or any kind of other ism under the cross. Because we all come in the same way, by the blood of the Lamb of God. You see, when we correctly understand the gospel, we will weep over our sins. We will rejoice over our forgiveness and adoption. We will cry tears, and we will rejoice at the same time. That's the gospel. Now let me give you one final thought. We'll close with this. There is a day where there's going to be a final restoration. We're, we've just talked about a restoration that was taking place in the city, and the city walls were restored, the temple was restored, the law, the, the, the covenant, the book of the covenant was restored to the people, and their hearts were changed. didn't last very long, but that's another story. But here's the point. There's a final restoration that's going to come. There's a final restoration that's going to come. And, and this is what it says in, in the book of Hebrews. The writer there says, But this is the new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them, my laws, on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And what Jesus is doing now is he's writing his law on our hearts. And one day it says, that Jesus is going to restore the earth and all of the heavens. And he says this in, in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God uh, out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now 
among His people. And I said all through this series, I want you to hear the one theme all through this is the whole point of this book is this. It's showing us that God wants to be with us. God wants to be with us. He's given us His Word and He's told us it ends with me being with you because that's what I want. And this is what life was, was like with God. He will live with them and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. But we're not living there yet. We're not there yet. We're in that already but not yet time. And there's an in-between time. And that's where we are. And in the in-between time, there are incredible times of joy and accomplishment and love. But there's also those times of tragedy and tears, pain, suffering, stupidity. So we live in that tension. But if we always hold to the gospel and we see what, what, that, we are, that we are flawed, we are sinners, we are far more... It, we're, we, we don't really analyze our own potential for evil enough. Maybe some of us do too much and we dwell on it. But the other side is we don't rejoice in our adoption and our forgiveness in the love that He gives to us. And we have to hold those two... We have to walk that line. So at, one, at, at the same time, we have a reason to weep. But we also have a, we, a reason to rejoice. One day, though, we will just rejoice. Jesus said this, and I'll close with this passage. It's from John chapter 16. I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, You will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. What Jesus is saying is, in that in-between time, the way that you keep your head up, the way that you keep your hope, the way that you don't lose heart is know that He has overcome this world. He's overcome the human heart, the evilness of the human heart. He's overcome the tainted gene pool. He's overcome the natural disasters. He's overcome all of those. And one day, we will be with Him. And there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more bombings. There'll be no more explosions. Unless they're on purpose. For good. But we're not there yet. And frankly, folks, there's not much we can do at this point to prevent this. Because nobody knows how dark the human heart is. Nobody. That's the world we live in. But we hold our head up. Because we know that there is a world coming where we won't have these things take place. We find our hope in Him. We find our joy in Him. We balance the gospel. and We say, I am a sinner. More of a sinner than I'd ever care to admit. But I am loved. 
He calls me his son. He calls me his daughter. He sent his son for me. I am valuable. I am significant. And one day he's coming back. That's the hope that we have. And that hope will overcome anything the world can throw at us. Amen? Would you stand with me? Let's pray. And Father, we do thank you for the hope that we have. That though this world is difficult, and though there is evil all around us, many examples of human beings who heroically aspire to that ethic of loving one another and even giving their lives for one another, jeopardizing themselves. We saw that this week too. And it gives us a glimpse of heaven. Father, again, we pray for those that are going through difficult times, not just those in Boston and Texas, but even in this room right now. May they find hope. May they find forgiveness in Jesus. Father, for those who are struggling tonight with a sin, may they deal with it, confess it, be honest with you, and move on. Maybe there's somebody here tonight, Father, that they just aren't really dealing with sin in their life. They're just kind of playing loose with it. May they not mock your cross. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. We give you praise in his name. Amen.